All right, our passage this morning is found in 1 Corinthians 11. We'll look at verses 2 through 16. Um, one of the articles slash commentaries I looked at this week opened this way. It, the author says, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16 has some features that make it one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the Bible. And I have 30 minutes to... Uh, Make sense of it. So, normally at this point of a sermon, here's what's happening. I'm going to give you the director's cut, right? We do what's called a scripture intro. That's, hey, we're about to read a Bible passage. And I've had the chance of studying this passage all week, at least, hopefully longer. And here you guys are showing up, still tired from last night. And for the first time ever, you've heard we're going to read a, a Bible passage. And halfway, you know, as I'm reading it, your mind's wandering and trying to catch up. That's tricky. So let me give you enough on the front end. Maybe as we read it, you'll go, okay, I'm sort of following it. Um, what Paul is doing, though he says he's, con he's commending them, he really is questioning some of their practices, okay? That is, some of their, what we're trying to figure out is what is going on that they're doing that's bothering him. It has to do with head coverings. Now, just, it was good, I thought about having a station where we handed them out as you walked in, but I thought, let me get through the sermon first, and then maybe next week. So be ready for that. Okay, I've offended somebody. I know I have. That's okay. Our job this morning is to ask and answer these questions. When you come to passages like this one, what we want to find out is what was happening in this passage that made this contentious, right? We want to know what was going on. That's very hard to find out. That's very hard to uncover, but that's our task for this morning. And then what today in our current setting is similar to that. That's the next challenge. So it's a lot of challenges before us, but our hope is that will grasp what Paul and what the Holy Spirit really wants us to grasp from this passage, okay? So here we go. Uh, I can't do it full justice in 30 minutes, but we'll do our best, starting in verse 2 through 16. Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is, in, since he is the image of the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have given us scripture to guide us. <clears throat> Thank you that your Holy Spirit 
is uh, with us this morning, illuminating your scripture to us. Help us to only understand what you would have us understand. Help guard my words uh, from being offensive or going across anything you've taught in this passage. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So there's an elephant in the room, right? Uh, we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and I've been saying, ah, oh, 1 Corinthians is a mess worth making. We're just like this church. And you're thinking, really? We sacrifice food to idols? We don't do that. Or the other things, like the sexual struggles they have, I don't think are exactly what we're dealing with in our culture, like the temple uh, prostitution. But then we come to chapter 11, where he's finally commending the church, and I think it's right where our culture is in some ways, Right? So there is this obvious thing like gender and, and equality. And there's really these two sides of the argument that probably go too far. Uh, I think and we're pushing against each other, depending on whichever side you find yourself. One side's highly you know, male chauvinistic, right? That's the traditional old side of it. I'm not going to give examples of it. But, you know, men are better than women, and we're in charge, and that pushing one direction. The other side would be more of a feminism side that would say, no, women are better than men. Right? You hear that a lot when you read articles. It's not just we're equals, but we're actually better than you. We can do everything you do, and we do what we do. And, and so you have these two sides sort of fighting. And I think for most of us, we're in the middle somewhere. And we're trying to figure it out. And here comes this passage that just is very hard to grasp and understand. But it, it's, the, it's the ending of the text that really opens the door to it, and that is the idea of being contentious. So here's what I want to I offer for us this morning. I think as long as we try to fight from a position of protecting our view, we're going to get it wrong. Even if we're actually sort of right in what we think, the whole disposition has to be couched in the gospel. So as we work through this passage, I hope you'll understand that the gospel, that is, Jesus Christ has come into your life. You are a new creation. His spirit dwells in you, right? And now you are free. This is the message that Corinthians has been dealing with. You're free to be who God has called you to be. Right? Whatever your role, whatever your gender, God has called you and I to a particular place and time. And, that, and the gospel frees us to be that and own that rather than trying to constantly shed that and go a different direction. So that's what we're hopefully going to understand. Here are the three things we're going to look at quickly. The issue, that's like the majority of what we're talking about, the arguments of Paul, and then the example. Okay? So we're going to look at the issue, the arguments, and the example. So starting with the issue, the hardest thing to figure out is what's going on in this passage. In verse 3, Paul says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife, or excuse me, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And where commentators are writing, I mean, pages and pages and pages, is this definition of head, or, or kephale. What, is, what does it mean? Is it simply the source? Is that, is, that Paul, is that what Paul's saying? Hey, God, Jesus, Jesus to man, the man to woman. That, uh, there's a lot of people that want to hold to that idea. And I would just say more, more than likely, I can't give you all the arguments for it, it really does mean authority. So that there's an authority since going on. And for Paul, he is saying that this idea of headship is, is an authority. And then we move into verse 4. And he moves over to a metaphor. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So this idea of head 
is metaphorical, in, in meaning, obviously, the husband is not the literal head of a wife. That would look weird, especially at parties. You've got to have a few jokes just to keep us moving. So, what is this idea of head in general, and then what, what does he mean by head covering? Here's the range, right? Some people think it's a veil. That's the prevailing idea. Um, some people think it's hair, like if a woman comes into worship and her hair is down, right? It's just hanging down. No, no, Paul wants it to be up and quaffed and beautiful. I don't know. Or maybe some people think it's, it's simply, maybe you've cut your hair. So there's all these different views of it. Um, and what is, it, what is the real meaning? You all want to know what actually this passage means, right? I don't know. And neither do you. So let's move on to the Lord's Supper. Um, okay. So what we do when we come to issues like this is we try to figure out why don't we know? And sometimes it's maybe better that we don't know. Here's what we do know. We know that they know. We know the original audience didn't go, huh, what's Paul upset about? They know what they're doing. Right? So whatever it is made sense to that culture at that time. All we know is that there is, he is couching his argument, we're going to talk about the arguments in a minute, in created order, but that there's something that's happening that creates contentiousness. Right? And that's verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice. Now let me tell you a possible theory. Okay? And I, and I think I tend to want to go with this theory, but again, it's not perfect. For the Corinthians, they erred toward almost what would be called Gnosticism. That is, when they became Christians, they sort of separated their idea of their religion from everyday life. Right? We saw that in chapter 6 when they were saying things like, why can't we go to temple prostitutes? All things are lawful. And Paul's like, yeah, but that's your body. And in chapter 15, he's going to say, and you're going to be resurrected with that body. But then there are other people in Corinth saying, why should we even keep having sex? We're married, but we're this new creation. We're sort of already there, right? So what theologians call this is an over-realized eschatology. In other words, they think they're already in the end times in some respect. And they're not sure what that means but they think that they can walk into worship and all the rules of culture are behind them right now. They're now in a worship service and they're worshiping. And let me show, my, point out too, the women are praying and prophesying. So whatever's happening, it's happening with both sexes, right? It's simply, the, I think that the heart of it is there's a contentiousness that's created when they move into worship and they're trying to shed cultural norms for the, for the time being as if gender was part of the fall. And so what Paul's capturing here is to saying, look, gender isn't part of the fall, it's part of the creation. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Okay, it happened before the fall, and it's beautiful. But, and actually what happened is, um, well, is, is they're coming in, they're trying to get that behind them, but we're not sure who's doing what and all the specifics. So here's the deal. Are you contentious? And as you think about carrying out your faith, as you come in here, as you think about some of the issues that are on your mind, are you contentious or are you seeking the Lord's desire and the Lord's will? That's what I think Paul's dealing with ultimately. Specifically, he's saying don't shed who God made you to be. Okay? And here are his arguments. We're moving into point number two. He gives several arguments. He gives a cultural, a cultural argument, one from nature, and then one from creation. So look at the cultural argument. He says at the end of verse 5, when a woman does not 
when she prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head, comma, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Show of hands if your head, heads are shaven. Let's see. No, I'm kidding. Okay. For if a wife, I feel bad because everybody I know, there's guys with long hair, there's women with short hair. Everyone's like, what's going on? And I get to stand up here and get all red-faced. For if a wife, verse 6, will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Paul is not defining culture. Paul is not sitting here going, let me just tell you something. Here's how culture should work. Paul is operating from the basis that the audience would go, ah, that makes sense. In other words, the original audience agrees with what he just said. Whether you do or not, it's not the point. The point is, they would go, that's so true. A woman would never want to shave her head. So he's saying, don't cover your head, or don't come in uncovered in worship. Does that make sense? In other words, we don't, we aren't supposed to read that and go, how do we adopt that culture? How do we make that culture our own? Rather, we're trying to go, what is it that they already know that that's pointing to? I don't know if this is a good illustration, but it's kind of funny, so I'm going to tell it. When we were in Japan, we went to a, basketball, a baseball game. And um, my wife's family's here. His uh, granddad was there. That's their dad, my wife and her sister's father. Went to a baseball game. And he loves to yell at their umps, and he calls them blue. I guess that's what you do when you're into baseball. I'm not as into baseball. And we were in this, we're the only Americans there, and he starts yelling at blue. And about four rows ahead, my wife thinks they were behind us, but I think they were ahead of us, was a, a Japanese, a couple of Japanese guys after work, eating, drinking their beer and eating their food. And they thought this was hysterical, and they were going to yell at blue as well. But they did it in English. Now, Grand Dan, Dan Van, he... He didn't say any curse words, but they thought it would be really funny to use American cuss words in broken Japanese English, bless their heart. And I won't tell you the words they chose, but they were the worst, okay? <laughs> and then they would say it in broken English, and then they would look back at us like, hey, you do blah, 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 huh? And, and Dan felt, oh, he was kind of like, oh, what have I done? Isn't that the first thing you do when you learn a language, especially if you're young? You're like, what is this word in that language, you know? <laughs> the point is this. You aren't making up the word. You know the meaning behind it in that it's scandalous in your own nationality, okay? And you're just trying to match the other nationality's language for it. So the point is, for Paul, he's not saying, if you shave your head, woman, you've crossed some line. Even though our culture may not have an issue with it, that's not what he's saying. He's saying something that that culture would go, that makes total sense. And our job, when we read a passage like this, is, is to ask, what do we do that would be scandalous when we do it in the moment? I'm not going to give you all the examples right now. I'm just giving you the arguments. Um, that's the argument from culture. He also argues from nature. Verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace? But if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory? Wow, so he just took it even farther. He really sounds like he's saying, this is nature, and if you don't believe this, change your beliefs. And yet there are people today who might go, wait a minute, is it wrong to have long hair if I'm a guy? And if I'm a gal, can I have short hair? I said gal. Perfect. Um, I prayed, okay. So here's my illustration for this one. Uh, Jesus says to, his, to some followers, Faith as small as a mustard seed, right, can sprout into a huge plant, okay? And, 
and, and some, somebody comes along that says the Bible's not the word of God, and they say, aha, we trapped you. There's a smaller seed, right? Did you know that? The mustard seed's not the smallest seed. Jesus was wrong. The Bible's not infallible. That's what the argument is. Well, but that seed was found like after the New World was discovered in 1492, and it's just a little smaller. And Jesus' audience would have no idea that there was even another continent yet. So can you imagine if he said, to be fair, there's going to be this other continent. <laughs> and it's going to do wonders for world economics. But it's also going to spread disease. It would have blown, he's teaching them a point. Paul is working within the scope of nature at that time and saying, from your understanding, I'm continuing to prove the point that in culture and in nature, we follow these rules. And you all agree, audience. And the Corinthians would say, yes, we agree. And he's saying, then when you come into church, don't throw those away out of contentiousness. Okay? So that's what's going on, in my view. And then he gives a third line of argument. And this is where it gets a little bit more intense. He goes to creation. He does say, right, we've already read, that God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of his wife or woman. And he says, and in verse 7 he says, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. In verse 8, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's hard. I mean, that's, that's really hard to explain. Either I mean, some of you love that, and you cherish that teaching, and you believe that. And some of you are looking at that, and that just sounds backwards. Um, so we have this problem, I think, with accepting and submitting to the scriptures at times. I think the reason that sounds backwards is because of the abuses of one side over the other, right? I think it sounds backwards to some people um, because we want equality, and we want to do, going back to my opening, we want everything to be equal, and it should be in so many ways. But nonetheless, God is saying in my economy, and the way I've built things out, there has to be a leader, right? And in the home, the husband is the leader or the head of the wife, is what Paul is teaching. Uh, the, this kind of hit me, this, the underlying theme hit me in a meeting I was in. Emily and I were meeting with our pastor, Chuck Garriott, where Chuck and I and Emily were trying to figure out who would do what part of the youth ministry. We were not married. Um, it was about the, moving into the fall of our senior year. No, junior year. She's giving me the clues. We don't know. We disagree on when things are. And the, Emily was giving, hey, Emily, you're going to work 20 hours a week and make this, the same. we're going to get paid the same. That's the beauty. Um, and Ryan, you're going to get like, I think it was like five hours. And I was like, huh? Because I'm thinking, hey, I'm, I feel called to ministry. This is where I'm getting trained. We're getting ready to get married. I need more money. Uh, why would I not get more hours? But we had other guys in the mix, and we, needed, we only had one female leader in the mix. And Chuck is a great leader and a great man of God. So part of, if you don't know him, this may seem rude. But he looked at me, and he said these words. Can you be okay with it? I, I, some of your faces are like, whoa. And I looked at him, and I felt like, no. But because of my relationship to Chuck, and I know his love for me, I had a part of me that thought, hmm, like, trust you? Maybe, you know, give you the benefit of the doubt? Actually think you are caring, you care for my good? Is that what you mean? 
those were going through my mind. The drive home, I think we were, I mean, we we're going back to Norman together from Edmond. I'm like, can you believe it? And Emily's probably like, yeah, but what did you think about what he said, you know? And uh, it's come back into my mind many, many times because in that moment, as my authority, Chuck looked at me and said, this is how it really needs to be. And since then, I've learned why. We have, I mean, just the way, I think, one, I needed a job in Norman to make more money. He didn't want to burden the church with too much burden financially. Two, we had, like, two other guys already helping lead. We only had one female. There's other reasons, right? He wasn't beating me up. He wasn't telling me I'm not called to ministry. He wasn't saying he didn't love me. But my temptation was to hear those things in that moment when, in reality, he was shepherding me. And, I, and for me, the way I was raised and everything like that, to have a man look at me and just say, can you live with this, was very, very helpful. And I think in our culture, and this is not a male-female thing, this is a cultural thing, we hate authority, right? Children, you do not like it when an adult tells you what to do if they're not your parent. Children, you do not like to do what you've been told to do if it is your parent. There's something about us that doesn't want that. Wives are, are afraid that if we teach this too much, husbands will be overbearing. But I think, if anything, husbands have, lo- have lost any sense of um, authority at all. We don't, um, I think when Brent prays that prayer, you pray, you know, hus- Lord, protect the husband and protect the father. I think a lot of us as men and fathers have become afraid of that. And so we've, been, we've just moved into this sort of middle weakness at times. Not everybody. This is just generalities. We're afraid of authority for the wrong reasons, and we're afraid of saying, look, somebody leads, right? And it doesn't mean that the, that person leads by always taking charge either. It means most of the time a good leader does what? Sub, like, I want to say submits, but comes along and cares, comes along and cherishes and builds up. And if that happened more, I think that maybe some of this teaching would not be as difficult So Paul has another line of argument. This is our final point. He's argued from culture. He's argued from nature. and He's argued from creation. But probably I think his best argument for this idea of submitting comes from the Trinity. And before I say it, I want to just make this point. Every one of us is called to submit. That's really the point of this passage, isn't it? There's nobody who isn't called to submit, right? And so look at this verse in verse 11. If you're in the camp that's nervous, maybe all of you are, God, this sounds so old and archaic. I love Paul. I love what he says in verse 11. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, what? In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, verse 12, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Paul is teaching equality, that one's not better than the other, right? That's that's not the point. But nonetheless, sometimes in in structures and in organizations, someone might take the lead on parts of it and someone takes the lead on other parts of it, right? Can you think of an example where two equals move into something and one of them takes a different role than the other? It's called the Trinity, right? Paul is arguing from the Trinity, in the Trinity, it's one of those hard concepts. We call it a mystery, right? What does that mean? A mystery is anything I can't explain. I'm like, ah, oh, it's a mystery. And you're like, okay, well, the conversation's over. People try like the apple. There's a core. There's the body, the, you know, the white part. And then there's the, it doesn't work. 
How do you explain the Trinity? The Trinity says there's one God and three persons. And they are, they're all co-equal. You, you, and, and there's this place in the book of John, um, probably one of my favorite places where this happens, where they've been with Jesus, they're his disciples, they're following him, and Jesus is explaining that he's about to go away and prepare a place for them and be with the Father, right? I've, I've said this a million times from this pulpit, so most of you know the story. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. Like he heard the word Father and got excited. I want to see the Father. And do you know what Jesus says? Have I not been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? That used to give me chills. This idea that, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mind is blown. You're the Father? I thought you were Jesus the Son. What's going on? Right? And so what theologians tell us, and they have to tell us because we can't, often figure these things. Is there such a thing as an economic trinity? Economic trinity. Huh? I think I heard that like twice in seminary and just filed it away. Here's what an economic trinity means. Though there are three persons that are equal in the Godhead, they each took on roles, right, to carry out the work of the universe, right? There wasn't necessarily a day or time this happened, but at some, somehow, in some mysterious way, Jesus is the Son, and he was the son from time immemorial. He never wasn't not the son. So when God made the earth, he gave Jesus a people. When God says, let's make man in our image, it's the image of Jesus. When Jesus is walking in the garden, or God's walking in the garden, it's not, well, that's God the Father's body. No, it's Jesus. He's the bodily form of the Trinity. Right? Yet, when the fall happens... There's only one person in that trinity that can save mankind, Jesus. In that beautiful place in Philippians 2, Paul's explaining how Jesus, though he's God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. But he made himself, he took the form of a man and came to earth to rescue his people. I paraphrase the end. One one commentator says the word though could be translated as because. And again, I'm not saying that's the exact way that you can read it either way, but think about that. Because Jesus is God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. In other words, godness means, put me in, coach. Godness means I'm going in. I'm not going to sit here and try to figure out if this demeans me or makes people, I'm going in. Right? It's the fall that created the hatred of submission. Submission existed from the beginning of time in the Trinity, which before the beginning of time, however you want to say that philosophically. It was the fall that created this hatred of our roles. And I think both sides hate their roles to some extent. And both sides grapple, and I'm talking about men and women, grasp onto their roles in wrong ways to kind of get what they want, just like two children in the schoolyard fighting over whose dad could beat up whom. I've never won that debate, right, kids? It's always like, Yeah, you got my dad. Don't worry about him. (sighs) Yet Jesus, who's not fallen, says, put me in. And he does. And I think the best place to see that is in John 13, where he washes the disciples' feet. I've I've preached on this passage. It's, It's so profound to me. As you know the story, Jesus is, this is the last Passover meal, really, that will ever happen think about it. Because from now on, he is the Passover lamb. And his disciples and he are together for their last night ever 
and he's explaining so many things to them. And if you remember the setting, in another gospel, we see that two of the disciples are fighting over who's going to be, you know, the mom of the sons of Zebedee, can one be on your right and one be on your left, and they're, who's the greatest? And now in John 13, we find that they've showed up to the Passover to sit down and have this meal. They've gone through all the proper cleaning, and there's the jar of water. The idea is you come in, you sit down, but your feet are still somewhat dirty, so you hire a servant, female, if you can get Gentile, to come and wash your feet. Because they don't want it to be someone they're going to pass on the street. You know, it's this idea of we don't want that person to be anywhere near us. So they come in, they do the dirty work, they leave, and now we're ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean and we can have this meal. Well, they gather around and the water's there and there's nobody to wash. So who stands up? Right? Why not? Why not go, let's just be honest, Matthias, you're kind of the least. I mean, no one even knows your name. You know? Is anybody, who, who knows the name Matthias? Come on, like three of you. He's an apostle. Why didn't he get volunteered? Hey, you're the one. You're, you'll work your way up the pecking order. But for today, you're washing the feet. No. Jesus is the only one that would stand up. And John tells us that Jesus, he pauses over and over all these parenthetical moments. Jesus, knowing where he came from, knowing who he was, knowing why he was here, knowing that Satan had put what in the mind of Judas, Jesus stands up, takes his robe off, has his undergarments, and he goes to Peter and the others to wash their feet. He's the only one that could do it because he was the only one that was sinless. In other words, every other person in that room had an ambition, had pride, had position, had some kind of rank, and or they given three years of this mess, and they're not giving it up now, and Jesus is like, let me show you how it's done. And he disrobes, and he washes their feet. And afterwards, he resumes his seat at the table, puts his outer garments back on, signifying the ascension, and he says, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, the servant is not greater than the master. We don't do that. Like We don't serve that way. If, if Christians would follow their master as Jesus taught us, no one would be wanting to be ahead of the other person. Right? Hey, welcome to being a deacon. There's the toilets. I'm good. I'll, I'm going to check into being a deacon next year. You know? Hey, welcome to being an elder. Um, we've got to deal with this. Welcome to being whatever it is in life. Welcome to whatever role. It's not glamorous. Mother, father, CEO, president. Those things shouldn't be glamorous, right? We should be serving. We should be willing to give up our lives for whatever we do. I have not yet answered the question about men and women intentionally because I don't know all the answers, but I am telling you this. Paul is against one thing primarily and one thing only, and that is taking your theology and saying, look at me, I don't have any more gender or body. I'm just kind of this new thing. He's saying, no, you are not. You are in Christ. You are who he made you, and you are to live out that calling beautifully, to be beautifully female 
or beautifully male or whatever role you have in life, that is where God has called you to be who you are. And it can only happen in the gospel through repenting of our sin, repenting of our ambition, and dying to self. Remembering that quote from C.S. Lewis, that only when we die will we truly live. He says, but look for Christ and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. I think we take passages like this and we make them so difficult because we're trying to ask this question. Do we wear head coverings or not? Right. What's the answer? What are we doing next week? And the answer is for this community in Corinth, they needed to cover their heads because it meant something. But it doesn't mean for us. We don't need to cover our heads. But we need Jesus. We need to walk with him and we need to love him and be willing to give up everything, even our status. And if husbands were doing that more and wives were doing that more, I think you would quit, we would quit fighting and we would start building families that were so beautiful. And I think we are doing that, by the way. Now, this is a praise to the church. I think you're seeing that in our culture. And I think we need to t- tell the world that, that it's not what it looks like. When we talk about the difference in gender and all these things, it's, it's so much more beautiful. Let's redeem it. Now, if I had a lot longer to do a series, I could go into more details, but I just don't have them. What are your, I would love for you all to start texting questions or telling me, you know, here's what we think, but does this make sense? Is Jesus your hope? Is he your source? Do you see him washing feet and going, ah, I need to be willing to serve and die? If not, then we're not reading Paul correctly. And if so, then I don't think we'll have any real issues with what he's saying here. Let's pray. Father, we are so quick to want to sort of be contentious and fight for our rights. And those are important things so often. So often we do need to fight for inequality. Lord, so often we need to speak out against injustice. The church needs to be the leader of that. But Lord, only couched in the mercy and the glory of Jesus. Let us not be fueled by our flesh. Let us not be fueled by ill motives, but only by you. Let every fight we do fight, every comment we make on Facebook, let it stem from a heart that is submissive to you, Jesus. You are our shepherd. We are one in you. You are the one who gave up your life for our glory and for yours. Amen.